Welcome to episode 47 on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and today I've got Andy Dolich along with Joe Favorito, a fellow podcaster with the Columbia University Sports Podcast. And Joe's uh, had a long career in the sports industry, done many things. You probably name it, he's probably done it. Um, really looking forward to having him on to talk all sorts of uh, aspects of the sports industry. And then uh, kind of conversing with Andy. And we'll go from there. But So, Joe, t- take us through your career path and a little bit of what you've done throughout your career, what we can maybe learn from it, and then we'll kind of dive into uh, some of the areas in which uh, you've, you've become a so-called expert in and, uh, you know, take us through your journey. So, so the expert side will take about 10 seconds. Uh, and it's funny, the things that, I, I've been involved with or never been involved with one of which is an NBA playoff win because I spent nine years in the NBA and the two organizations I worked with the Sixers and the Knicks never won a playoff game. So, um, so the, you know, there's lots of never, never bins and never dones. Um, but I, I kind of have lived a long different type of career in uh, the space that one of my former bosses, Tom Chestnut, used to call the lunatic fringe of sports and entertainment. <laughs> uh, and I've been there for a heck of a long time, uh, now like 33 years, but I really kind of started in this business when I was 18. Um, and that was kind of the, the fun part of this was um, I was lucky enough <clears throat> before an industry really kind of existed to be involved with um, – a high school basketball team my senior year in high school we won the new york state high school basketball championship uh, and the player on the team if anybody's ever seen hoosiers which i'm sure hopefully some people have although the amount of people today who've seen hoosiers gets less and less every time i bring it up <laughs> um so i was kind of like ollie except i never made the free throw and the guy who was jimmy chitwood who came around and made the shot was chris mullen so uh we won the new york state high school basketball championship my senior year and we ended up beating a team in the semifinals who ended up having three NBA players. Uh, and we had Chris Mullen and a bunch of other guys. Uh, and of the 14 guys on the team, 12 never even played college basketball. So it was a fortuitous start. And after that, I knew that I wanted to do something in sports. Sports really wasn't a business at that level that it is now. Uh, I went to Fordham University in the Bronx. Uh, my father made sure that I majored in economics and communications in case I had a fallback. Um, but one of the, the lucky things, and I'll, I'll kind of speed through everything, but so we have, uh, and we still have a pretty good radio station, WFUV, which is 50,000 watts in New York City. And to this day, they still have New York's longest running sports talk show, which is called One on One. It's on every weekend still. And it was before WFAN and talk radio. And um so we got lucky on a lot of things, but my sophomore, junior, and senior years, there were seven guys who did play-by-play for Fordham's football, basketball, baseball program on this 50,000-watt radio station. So they were Michael Kay, the voice of the Yankees, John Giannone, who's now the voice of the Rangers, Jack Curry, who's on the Yes Network and has a best-selling book out now, Bob Papa, who's the voice of the Giants, uh, Mike Breen, who's obviously the voice of the NBA, Charlie Slows, who's now the voice of the Washington Nationals, 
and myself, the one dumbass who decided to get out of broadcast. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. back. If you can hear me uh, out here in the Silicon Valley, our connectivity is not very good, as Jake full well knows, and a lot of our 46 mm -hmm. other guests. So quick, uh, mm -hmm. I want to ask and answer my own questions. Um, Archbishop Malloy, is that no, the I high to, school? I actually went to Severian. So Archbishop Malloy at that point was Kenny Anderson. Um, and so, so we were a, a medium-sized school in Brooklyn. And, and Molly was Severian? Chris yes. Mullen? So he transferred huh. his yeah. sophomore year, in the middle of his sophomore year, after his sophomore year, from Power Memorial, you know, the home of Louis Oh, Alcindor. yeah. There was a gentleman named Louis Alcinder who was a fairly good player at uh, Power yeah. Memorial. And another one named Len Elmore, by the way. After that's so, that's correct. So, and um, ironically, my, my tie to Fordham is that the land that Fordham's Lincoln Center campus now sits on was Power Memorial High School. So, uh, so, Jesuit, so Jake, I'm over for one because I thought <laughs> Molly might have gone there. I know he went to St. John's with Louis Carnesecca. Um, right. And and then uh, Fordham, the seven blocks of granite, which number right. Um, yeah, but and, anybody in the Bay Area will know all about the rivalry between St. Mary's and Fordham for a long uh, time. Actually, there's a guy named Dave Newhouse. You would appreciate this. Um, Well-respected writer for many years who's become a book writer now and just wrote mm -hmm. a book about Slip Madigan, Slip Madigan who was yep. the St. Mary's coach. And it's, it's coming out. I'll, I'll spring for a copy. But mm -hmm. Zev Graham... Uh, mm -hmm. Jake, the, the uh, audience is really learning stuff that they could care less about in this two or three minute segment. <laughs> but Ze Zev Graham was one of those seven blocks of granite and he was a teacher at Valley Stream South High School that I mm -hmm. went to. Okay, so now we've made everybody sick and tired of New York geography and all the things that we did in the dark ages. Um, how is your business sort of moved to today where we're just in a different world? Um, and all the the different clients and events that you're in now. What over the last few years, what have you seen as probably the single biggest change when you get up in the morning and try to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with these uh, hundreds of events, clients, etc., that are happening all over? I think actually less has changed than what people look for. I think the biggest thing that hasn't changed, and David Stern talks about this all the time, uh, businesses that start out big and small, there are two key elements. One is sales and the other is storytelling. And a lot of people have lost the ability to storytell because they, they are involved in so many different things at so many different times that they don't never have the opportunity to kind of sit back and listen, a very important skill, Andy, as you know, um, and kind of figure out how to put together the narrative that they need to advance their business. And the best companies do it well. And the ones that need help kind of find me, whether they are startups or, you know, well-established companies. And, and that's really kind of where my business over now being on my own. Um, but, I, but I think that's the piece of storytelling. I, I think that uh, no matter what the platform is, no matter what the medium is, no matter who it is you're talking to, making sure that people are on point and listening uh, and then figuring out all the various places where you can go and tell your story. 
And that is a point that has been brought up on many of the interviews that we've done that, um, and I won't say the lack of institutional knowledge, but not everything is brand new. And to your point, and I'm glad you brought it up, even if you have multiple ways of delivering the message, well, if your message isn't, doesn't have any traction to it and it doesn't have a tomorrow, then actually what good is it? Mm-hmm. And people are so busy, uh, and I don't like that word, but they're so busy, they don't have time, as you say, to sit down and why don't you listen? And I, I think it's somewhat of a good example. Um, the world is focused, the U.S. sports world is focused on the massive success in media of the U.S. women's national team or the great story <clears throat> that came out of Wimbledon of Coco Goff. But what do you do next? I mean, how do you build on that so that it doesn't disappear and you have hundreds, if not thousands of stories of things that owned the media for a bright, sunny moment and then disappeared forever. So as a tip to those that are trying to figure out, you know, how to become a professional communicator, if you could add a bit to the storytelling and how you think through the uh, windshield and not the rearview mirror, how does that work? So, so I think, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, you see, and and right now I'm reading uh, the trillion dollar coach, the book about the life of Bill Campbell. Um, I've got it right in front of me. I've got it right in front of me. And ironically, Some of your co-hosts are actually in the book in the first few pages, which is great. Um, But there's a guy who learned a great deal of things when he was a not successful football coach at Columbia and went on to obviously being the CEO of Intuit and then developing these relationships with the biggest names in Silicon Valley. And basically what he's done, what he did over his life, the second half of his life was use storytelling skills and compassion and teamwork to help tell narratives and listen. There's so much of the book that's about listening and how he was able to sit in meetings and listen and help redefine something because he heard something that nobody else in the room was hearing because many of those people were screaming at the top of their lungs and he was sitting there quietly listening. And that's one of the things that you try to convey to people is to take a breath. Everybody thinks the whole forest is on fire when in reality, a lot of times it's just one little tree. Well, Joe, I, I, I learned something yeah. back, back in, in school, believe it or not. Uh, you, you do actually learn a little <laughs> bit. Um, but in one of my breaking news, breaking <laughs> news, Jake learned something in school, yeah. breaking news. Yeah. We, you know, when I was in a speech class, um, you know, our professor had always said, how, think about how many people, if, you, if we're having a conversation, are thinking about what they're going to say next as opposed to actually listening to what you're saying and the amount of, uh, you know, the percentage of what you actually miss of the person speaking to you because of the fact that you're just solely thinking about what you're about to say next, regardless of what the person says to you. Uh, And I thought that was fascinating. You kind of take that throughout your, you know, your daily activities. Um, You can probably, if you think about it enough, you can probably tell who's doing that and who's not. Is that something that you've picked up on along the way? Andy? Well, I just did it there because I, I think the biggest thing that you can do is pause. And if you pause and listen, 
you know, my, my grandfather who helped run the South Brooklyn Democratic Club when I was growing up always had a saying was you have two ears and one mouth and you should always listen twice more than you speak. And I try to tell all the young people that I work with and, and some of the not so young people that the value of listening, because when you listen, people are saying things that they don't even realize that they're saying. And that's part of storytelling is, is being able to take that pause and digest for a second, as opposed to always being leaning forward. I think we live in very much a success world of success where we're leaning forward is a quality. Uh, and it's something that, that is continuing to be defined. But if you can sit back and listen to what people are saying, it's amazing the things they tell you. You know, what about uh, almost like the awkwardness silence too, Joe, right? Like in a conversation, you have that awkward silence where something, someone has to really think about something, but you don't want to interject right away because you'll, you'll probably disrupt their thoughts. I think actually it's funny. That's an acquired taste and it's a valuable trait to have. Um, and, you know, we live in a world, if you listen to talk radio, if you listen to podcasts, if you watch television, whether you are interested in pop culture or politics, everyone's always trying to shadow with somebody else to get a point in. And the reality is, you know, it's almost like having a good marriage. You know, the, the point is you don't always have to get the last word in. As long as you're conveying your message and finding out ways to convey it, people will listen. And it's not always the loudest voice. I think we're, we're now coming around in a culture where, you know, the screaming is still tantamount to what people think is success. But what I, I think you're starting to see is success is based on good listening and, and networking and putting together thoughts versus just spewing out whatever comes out. And Bill was the kind of person, as I think I was saying, uh, coming back, that he wouldn't just focus on the CEO or the chairman. He had a 360-degree view of people everywhere. And mm -hmm. he, he, bought, uh, he bought a bar in uh, Palo Alto called the Old Pro, and I don't know if you've ever heard, but when you're out here, we can go to the old pro and everybody's it's here. Still there. Yes, it's still there. And well, that's awesome. Yeah. And what Bill did, it was sort of like the Algonquin round table on Friday nights. You could just hop and bop in and you never knew who the heck was going to be there. And it was just mm -hmm. that it was storytelling. It was friendship. But it wasn't just, oh, you're in charge of this, or Pat Gallagher, you're at the Giants, or Dolish. It was everybody in the place knew Bill. And that isn't easily done, I think, in that area as, you know, we're, we're all trying to be teachers. The ability to listen and also the ability to fail miserably but not end whatever you're doing is also a key consideration because mm -hmm. you – probably deal with a lot of crisis management situations and I'd be interested in you know hearing some of that when individuals or events or something significant doesn't exactly work the way you thought and how you advise those individuals or those events or those leagues how to deal with the crisis that is sort of the new normal in today's society mm -hmm. um I think one of the things, and unfortunately, having just gone through a pretty big crisis with the, the AVP, where we had a 25-year-old 
rising star on the men's side commit suicide uh, in mid-June, right after he had played pretty well in New York, uh, you know, is an example of taking the emotions out of a lot of things and, and trying to balance uh, the reality of what's going on and put it in perspective as much as you possibly can. Uh, you know, and that's obviously an extreme, but uh, a lot of times, back to what I was saying before is, we all live in our own kind of drama. Everybody has their own drama world and you think that everybody's looking at you um, and, and the whole world is revolving around you. When in reality, everybody's kind of caught up in their own worlds and you think that the whole forest is on fire when if someone steps back and says, well, that's just a little bush over there. It's not really the whole fire and let the whole forest. So let's just kind of deal with the one bush and see how we can deal with that and put that fire out and kind of go from there and not, by the way, escalate. I think the biggest problem, and I keep going back to this, the biggest problem that, that when people escalate a crisis and make it into something much bigger is when they're not listening uh-huh. and they're not taking advice and they're not talking to other people who may have been through something right away. The other thing that happens is there's an immediacy to react. And, but, but I also think it's, it's really valuable to have the right support staff around you to listen to the right people uh, and to not react immediately all the time. You have to kind of think about what's going on, uh, assess what the world is going around and then not escalate the problem by, by doing things that, that don't make any sense. You know, the, there's a lot of nonsensical things, I think, that happen when people get emotional. Uh, and taking that emotion out of business and making sure that you're addressing as many constituencies as you can with a similar message is really, really important. And for, for those who are listening, who are either trying to get into sports uh, or those who are in sports trying to move up, you know, as they kind of communicate with people in their organization, or, or people outside of the organization, what they should maybe think about um, before they speak. Okay. Um, I think the first thing is who's the audience? Who are you trying to convey a message to? Uh, what is the message that you want to convey? Is it accurate? A lot of times when you're dealing with situations where there are legal issues involved, things get much more hairy and you have to be very, very, cautious uh at the same time being respectful to the audience that's going on but having a lawyer involved in looking at what it what the physical statement is that you're putting out is really important Uh, one of the things that happens often now is uh when when someone is in front of media and media can be anybody who's holding a phone in their hand the immediate reaction is to speak because someone's holding something in front of your face when in reality you don't have to answer a question right away unless it's a live interview for something. And it's okay to say, let me get back to you on that. Or it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, you were talking before, you know, about how you started in high school and then college. Now we literally are dealing with a world market. Have you seen any change there? I know we've agreed on the storytelling and the basic principles but now, literally, with some of your clients and the way that sport is working, it's a 24-hour-a-day mm-hmm. cycle, or 24-hour-a-day cycle in 24 seconds. Any nuances or changes based upon the global marketplace of sports? 
I think one of the things is understanding the cultures that you're working in. That's really, really important. And for a long time, as the ugly Americans, I think we tried to force things down people's throat without really understanding um, the nuances of what would be successful and literally the politics that have to be worked in, in various places. I think that that's become more understood that you have to speak the language and understand the culture and where you're going versus trying to impose your will on people. Um, I don't think that works as well anymore. And I, I think, frankly, we even saw some of that in the Women's World Cup where you know people viewed them as the ugly Americans. And I, I personally think that they did some things that, that were immature and, and shouldn't have been done. And you got to answer to a higher standard when you're representing the United States. So I think that's, that's one of the challenges is being able to understand that you're working in a global environment and that not everybody speaks English or understands everything that you're doing. You should take when you're working in a global environment. Um, and, and that goes back to, you know, using the word football versus soccer in certain cultures. Uh-huh. Or, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, we try to impose our will on things and that works less and less today. And I think the ramifications are bigger because you're playing more on a global stage. Yeah, you think of the dichotomy of the women, you know, in France, and I don't know what the actual split was between people yelling and screaming on behalf of the U.S. team, and then the Copa de Oro last night in Chicago, right? I think that's where it was played. And And what percentage of those fans, you know, were rooting for Mexico vis-a-vis the United States and how, wow, um, you know, that would be an interesting postgraduate course of how that all, uh, you know, because the U.S. men's team, like, okay, nice story. You didn't win the World Cup. Well, it wasn't exactly the World Cup. And how big a story that Mexico's victory would be throughout the country today Mm -hmm. uh, for, for their team. Yeah, and, and the Mexican national team is still the most watched team in North America by far, not even close. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that that's part of it is really understanding kind of the global nature and, and realizing that, you know, you've got athletes like Cristiano Ronaldo who are global ambassadors. And if you walk down the street in Manhattan, you'll see as many kids wearing Messi and Ronaldo jerseys as you will see wearing Aaron Judge jerseys these days. So that's important to understand. I was thinking about, I I saw a spot earlier today uh, for home run derby tonight um, at the all-star game. And it was just chock full of exit velocity, launch angles, analytics, metrics, nanoseconds, algorithms, and everything. And who's going to be able to really tell the story behind those players. I mean, everybody likes stats. As you see the incredible growth of fantasy, e-gaming, now legalized betting, do you think that changes the environment? I think it helps give people something else to do during periods of inaction. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's the real value of where, especially the gambling space is going to go where it will give, especially sports like baseball and, and American football, where there will just be more things to engage with and more reasons to go to games uh, or to engage in a, on a second screen experience than you've ever had before. And, and that, that sense of community for people that you're interacting with is going to be pretty valuable going forward. I think that's important. Now, 
esports and gaming is a totally different animal. I think that there's a bubble on the esports side that will maybe not burst, but will be poked over the next, you know, year to year and a half, kind of like the MMA bubble of 10 years ago did. Um, but I think the gaming side of it, which is 97% of what people think about when they think about esports and gaming, I mean, FIFA, NBA 2K, um, uh, Words with Friends, uh, you know, anything that you could do on a, on a largely for free, but on a, on a handheld device versus competitive esports, um, you know, th- that's, that's a, the gamification and the ability to engage people uh, as part of a traditional sports experience is going to be pretty valuable going forward. I think that that's, it's, it's all about how you, you kind of get the eyeballs and the fingers and the attention of people, whether they're 15 or whether they're 75 at this point. And that's where, where that second screen experience is going to continue to become valuable. So if, if everyone's looking at two, three, four screens soon enough, um, how do we go back to kind of you know, outside of the listening, as we touched on before, how can we make sure that uh, we're not letting that take over sports or let, let the, you know, the extra screens or the constant, um, you know, feedback in a sense affect the experience of, you know, what we know as, as sports now and, and how, uh, we were talking about the stories earlier and, and how they can impact, you know, we had, um, Matt Wolf, you know, at 20 years old, winning a PGA tour event and, uh, guys, you know, that are 20 years old participate, participating in the home run derby. Those are stories that, you know, might get almost lost in the shuffle sometimes, uh, if everyone's focused on something else and, and five other screens, right? And a 15-year-old at Wimbledon, right? 15-year-old at Wimbledon. What did we had? Uh, but then at the same time, you've got, you know, 34-year-old, right, uh, Rapino, uh-huh. right, with the women's national team. So you've got kind of a story for everyone in every, you know, culture, demographic, et cetera. Um, you know, how do we look at that through – uh, you know, multiple. You mean when 32 out. is too old, right? Like they're calling for a few <laughs> players on the U.S. men's national team. They need to go, right? They're 33 or 34. They got to go because we need, you know, we need Christian and we need the next 18 or 19 year old. When you know, Andy, when when you were in the uh, in the A's front office, what was considered old? We really what didn't. Talk about it. I, I must say that that's a question that I would never say good question to because I don't like that. But it <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't something that came up in terms of age. Uh, you know, we had our young pups and rookies, and baseball has a great language, right? You're a rookie, hey rook, or the dumbest thing that anybody's ever said, oxymoron. He's a young freshman. Love that in college yeah. sports, like Gary what you yeah, the young freshman. Um, so age, is there ageism in today's world? Heck yeah. Uh, but um, when we had our team, you know, we had seasoned vets. We had our rookies and we had our mid-levels. I, Joe probably, 
might have a different view, but age just wasn't that important then. I think if you look at it from another perspective, where every time a communications medium has come along, people thought it was going to ruin everything, whether that was radio, television, sports talk radio, the internet, everything was going to ruin it. It was going to change the way we did things and the way we engaged. And guess what? The games are still here. People are still going. They're loving the experience. And they're adapting to the medium. So it's a question of adoption and finding the level versus saying that this is going to be the cataclysmic end of what we do. It's just not the way society works. Yeah. You know, unless you're a blacksmith, you know, I think that, you know, you'll be, you're able to, it goes on. <laughs> no, that's true. I had a young person come up to me today when I was reading the paper going like, excuse me, sir, what's that? Yeah. I said, oh, oh no, it's, it's a new, <laughs> no, I mean, he really didn't, but it's like, where'd I want one of those. Where'd you get that? Um, mm-hmm. because everybody's doing it. But it, to Joe's point, it's still a story. And if you're not telling the story properly, right, in uh, Morse code, uh, carrier pigeons, cave drawings, smoke signals, radio, TV, digital media, global downloads from outer space, it doesn't matter because it's not a story well told. And if it is, boom, I was thinking about um, Lou Gehrig's, the anniversary of Lou Gehrig's, you know, one sentence, one of the most powerful sentences in the history of sport and a guy that didn't talk, right? He just didn't really want the public accolades vis-a-vis babe, but who's got the line, you know, Lou's got the line. Joe, as we kind of look at uh, how to tell your story. This would be a good transition as we as we kind of wrap up the episode. For those who are trying to get into the into the industry, for those who are in the industry trying to move their way up, move around, etc. How can they best tell their story? What's maybe a couple pieces of advice that, that you tell people you work with or mm-hmm. or uh, young professionals about? You know, really, it you know, forget the elevator pitch phrase, right? But how do you really tell your story? What are you known for? That, that, that's the biggest thing. What separates you from the 15 people that are around you? You are the woman with the pink shirt on. You are the person who always has trivia. You are the person, and I, it's cliche to say you're the first person there. The but you, know, you have to, in your personal narrative, you have to develop the skills that separate you from everybody else. Everybody has a story. There is no doubt that anybody you come up to has a story. Sometimes they just don't know how to tell it. So developing your narrative with the skills that you have, no matter what it is that you're doing, is the most important thing. Because you have to be able to separate yourself, no matter what you do, from everybody else. And that takes a lot of work sometimes. And figuring that out is not the easiest thing. And I'll give you one really good example. So two years ago at the Sloan MIT conference, uh, some Columbia students came up to me and said, you got to meet this guy. And I'm like, okay, who's the guy? Well, what does he want to do? So I went over and I was standing outside <clears throat> the green room talking to Scott Rosner, who was just coming on to run the Columbia program. And this guy comes over to us and I said, okay, everybody says, I have to hear it. What is it? He goes, I'm the sports haiku guy. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I write a haiku about sports every day. 
I post it on my website. I have a small radio station in Vermont. I host a show there. I put together a book. I've Kobe Bryant has published and, and read and tweeted some of the, the haikus that I've written. That's what I do. I've become known as the sports haiku guy. I thought that was one of the smartest things I've ever heard because he figured out what he was good at and he figured out how to use that. What was the difference was, yeah. and I meet people like that all the time who, when you can help them tell their story, they don't know sometimes what it is that separates them. But when you've been around for a while and they, they talk for a while and you're listening to them, suddenly something shines through and we're like, that's the thing that you have to kind of hone and figure out how to do it. And so, so for those, for, for those listening and sitting at home or riding in the car and they can, you know, maybe, maybe this is homework. Uh, I, I didn't know we were in school today, but this is homework. Um, what can they do to try and figure out how to tell that story or at least ask the right questions uh, to tell that story? I think some of it comes from self-examination. Some of it comes from learning from the people that are around you, listening to the people that are around you and hearing what they say and feel about you. I think developing a social footprint is important. And by that, I mean not having to tweet or Instagram or put something on LinkedIn about everything that goes on, but using it as a listening tool to figure out where you can insert yourself into important narratives, whether that is pop culture, business, media, movies, doesn't matter what it is. It, it, it helps in, uh, advance your position and gives you a point of view. I think knowing a lot of times what your point of view is and not imposing that on people, but figuring out how it works into a narrative is really important. Um, it's water cooler talk. It's networking. That's, you know, they're really basic skills that you have to go and develop yourself. And they become natural after a while. And the less forced and the more sincere they are, the better off you're going to be. And, you know, you were talking before, I think, about the South Brooklyn Democratic Club or someplace like that. Yeah. If yeah. you didn't learn how to deal with being heard, um, then you were going to disappear. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to be physically terrific and everything, but you do have to work on your mental exercises and you do need to speak and you do need to argue and you do need to understand how that all works and develop a sense of humor or to try to have one because that's what makes people valuable today. Um, because you have 73 digital doodads, so somebody else has 122. You know, to your haiku example, or again, the South Brooklyn Democratic Club, you, you better be able to deal at that level or you're going to disappear. And Joe, where do people, how do people come to you and, and see and hear and read all the stuff that you're dealing with on a daily basis? Um, now, that, now that I have the check next to my name on Twitter, it's at Joe Fav. That, that's right. been important to this. Uh, on Instagram, I'm Joe Fav Nix. I've never given that up. Um, my website, <laughs> Joe Fav, practices. Um, and it's, it's, you know, LinkedIn is obviously a really powerful tool. I think it's one of the most powerful and underused tools out there. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you know, we do a newsletter on Sundays that reaches a whole heck of a lot of people, which is a lot of fun. You can sign up for that. It's great. Uh, I give know. it the highest marks. Terrific. Thank you. And then, um, you know, anything that, you know, if people have questions, 
you know, I've, I've tried to make myself available just because Andy, as you know, there are so many people that help you along the way. Yep. You reach a certain tipping point that it's important that you kind of help the other people who are trying to come up the ladder. And then those people you learn from, it's constantly learning. I mean, I think that's the best part about this business. You never stop learning. And you never, and, and you never know who your learn. next client could be. Like you did that to me. Now I'm some hotshot zillionaire starting some new sport. You never know, right, Joe? We have some experience yeah. in that. Yeah, um, a few things. Yeah. So, Joe, thank, thank you. Uh, I'll say thank you before I'm carried off in the ozone, but I'll leave it to. Uh, to Jake to close us out in this session and we really appreciate it. Thanks for having Joe, me. Joe, thanks thanks again for your time and really enjoyed having you on. I know I learned a lot today. Uh, I, I would say I probably learned more on this podcast um, through our 47 episodes than you know you do throughout, throughout some of your schooling and so I, I would say you know if, if we've learned anything from you today it's listen uh talk to people but listen and uh continue to develop those thoughts uh of your own right and uh we appreciate uh, all the insights and advice um and we'll, we'll certainly follow you with uh with check mark on twitter